Welcome to the season finale for season three of Should We? Creative conversations about the everyday choices that make us. Brought to you by MailChimp. With Lisa Sanchez and Diana Kimball Berlin. Hello, Diana. Hi, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here with you in the recording studio again. It was too long between sessions. I know. Yeah, I was on the way here today and I had, again, that first day of school feeling like when when we take big gaps between when we record. I miss you. I miss you too. And a lot happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel like at some point in a, in a previous episode, we talked about the fact that we change so quickly. Um, so there was this thing about Samba. Like at some point I, I took like a few Samba classes at... Um, ODC in the mission in San Francisco, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was so, so into it. And then an episode or a few later, I had this moment where I was like, if somebody asked me about Samba, if somebody was like, I'm doing Samba now too, but I didn't see you there or like whatever, I would be like, what? What is Samba? I don't know what you're talking about, you know? Because, like, that was a thing, a really present thing for me for a moment. And then, like, I totally moved on to other things and didn't keep doing it. Yeah. Sometimes people will start at the beginning of listening to all Should We episodes of all time. And they'll be like, I started doing that thing, that habit that you love. And I'm like, which one? Like, I'm <laughs> quite sure I don't do it anymore. Like, does that negate everything? Will you think that I'm garbage? You know. <laughs> oh, <Diana>, never garbage. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something here about, like, how dynamic ritual is for both of us, which is kind of a tension, kind of a contradiction. I also feel like we're like idea or habit generation factories where we like incubate it for three weeks, do an episode about it and then drop it permanently. But it could be life changing for someone else, you know, like it was a good idea for us at the time. So why wouldn't it be a good idea for someone else indefinitely? Yeah, so so our, our whole tagline is creative conversations about the everyday choices that make us and that can be that can include like one time decisions, but often it's it's kind of it is about rituals and habits and stuff and and perspectives that shape the way we live our lives. Um but I guess I feel like I need to make some disclaimer to our listeners that what you can count on us for is trying out all the habits, tons of ideas constantly, uh, and sharing with you the ones that work and some of the ones that don't. And why they worked or why they didn't work for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, What... I hope you know by now you can't count on us for us to keep doing the <laughs> things that we say we love. Yeah, love and consistency are not the same thing. They don't have to be. Not in our world. Not in the world of should we. Oh, man, that's so intense. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> what did that, why is that intense? I don't know. Like, I feel like... There's probably a metaphor in there for relationships mm-hmm. or something. Like there's this, there's a big tension for, I think, in, in a relationship. Like what does love even mean? You know, is, is consistency important to love? Like continuing to be who you are at any given moment or is like being dynamic and change in evolution essential to a relationship or a little bit of both. Yeah, I'm really torn hearing that because part of me is like, no, love is about being present to the moment. 
love is about aliveness. And I'm just like grasping at phrases from coaching or coach training to like, you know, justify my reality. But then there's also this thing about how I think about being reliable. And I'll almost call it like the brand promise of me. Like I all the time start worrying that I'm like breaking the Diana brand promise by like not (laughs) responding to all my email because part of my brand promise is responding to all my email. And, you know, Diana, uh, tell me about your brand promise. Oh, I don't know. I don't really want to, but I will because that's what we're doing today. We're getting... Even more real than before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just want to keep raising the stakes. So what's the brand promise of Diana? The brand promise of Diana is something about, uh, it's something about like outrageous consistency combined with delightful generativity and spontaneity. I don't know. I think that's totally not right, but that's what I hold myself to. Diana, do I have a brand promise? Uh, like gentle playfulness. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. Thank you. I like that. I think I actually am pretty resistant to the idea of a personal brand promise, actually, because I extremely love surprising people. I really love um, messing up their expectations of of who I am, what what I can do, what's what's possible for me. Mostly like proving them wrong if they think mm-hmm. I can't do something. Um, I really don't like obligation. Um, uh, so maybe do I? Maybe I don't really promise anything about myself. Do I? Well, I don't, I don't think you promise a lot about what you'll do. You promise a lot about how you'll be. Yeah, how I'll be. Hmm, very interesting. It is important to me that idea that um, people don't remember what you said or exactly what you did. They remember how you make them feel. So that I, I think about uh, consciously and subconsciously a lot. Like, you know, especially in work situations or friend situations like like okay this is hard or whatever or something's at stake here how do I hope people remember I made them feel people brought that phrase up to me a lot in the lead up to this keynote I did recently and they used it as a way of saying like how you feel and what you project on stage is more important than what you say Oh, that was about how you feel. Uh, yeah, well, the idea for me at least is like about if I'm not comfortable, then I'm not making other people comfortable. You can't make someone else feel comfortable from a place of discomfort. Holy cow. That's also very intense. That like that you the way that you leave other people feeling is dependent upon the way you feel inside. And so how did that go, Diana? Grappling with discomfort. Well, I kept being like, come on, like, it's a scary thing. Of course, I'm going to be scared on stage, you know, and I knew they were right. And I knew I wanted to get to a place of more comfort with doing this keynote. And so what I decided was that I couldn't make myself comfortable without going through the discomfort. And so I just tried to have as many feelings about the keynote as possible to just see if that would clear any of them out. Um, And it mostly did. And I think I mostly was able to be pretty present and warm for the for my section of the keynote. And I was sort of surprised that it worked. Like having all your feelings clears things out. That was like a very wishful theory of mine. You know, I was like, I'm not sure it'll work at all, but I can't think of anything else that might. So let's try this. Wow. And how did you have all the feelings? Well, I would talk about it a lot with people. And instead of trying to brush it off or tell them it was for sure going to be okay, you know, at probably a week and a half before this was like a keynote as a part of Dreamforce. Um, and I had a seven-minute segment. 
that I practiced for weeks. Do you want to tell how many people it was in front of? Uh, there were thousands of people in the room. Um, yeah. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal. Um, and I got a dress for it, and I got hair and makeup done for it, and I wore a Madonna mic. You know, it was like uh, that. You know, curved around my jawbone, and uh, and that I spoke into, and that was the same color as my skin, more or less. Um, so, do they have different shades of those? I was just thinking about that. Mm. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, they should. Yeah, definitely. So I was preparing for this multi-thousand person moment, and I uh, a week and a half beforehand, people would ask me how it was going, and I my impulse was to say, it's fine. But then at some point, I started being like, I'm really nervous. And then people would have all kinds of reactions to me being nervous. Um, but then I had to go through the journey realizing I couldn't control their reactions and their reactions were more about them than me. And then um, I would have really deep conversations with close friends who had time where I would cry about everything that was at stake and how much I didn't want to disappoint people and why this was an important career moment for me and um, why I wanted everyone to understand how great this product is. And um, and then I just had enough of those tearful conversations that I was really like empty of feelings by the time the day came. Wow. Wow. And I I got to watch you fr- from afar on the internet and you really were that. You really were all that you meant to be. I mean... I, it made me feel really comfortable with you on a giant stage with the fancy mic and everything. I was like, obviously, you belong there. And um, I got excited about the product. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so proud of you. So proud. So we have one case study of it working. like, But it wasn't that... I guess the thing is, if I had targeted diff- if I had targeted feeling comfortable, I think I would have tried not to feel uncomfortable along the way. But instead, I just went into the discomfort and was like, "Well, let's see how long this lasts. Let's see how much discomfort there is." And it's not that there was a limited amount. It's just that I had felt enough of it that there wasn't a lot of like dust bunnies in my system. And so the day of, the excitement of the day could wash over me without having to get through a bunch of dust bunnies. Yeah. So this makes me uh, realize that we haven't said yet what is the question that we're talking about this time. And um, so what is the question? Should we change everything? (laughs) So... um, and and I think that you telling this story of your keynote is helping me understand some of why we are constantly changing our habits and everything. It's because we keep taking on new challenges or life just throws new things at us, really hard things, opportunities, whatever. And so that is part of rolling with it, is constantly redesigning how we do each day. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that fully doing one theory of life helps me to be more comfortable when I totally switch gears because I know what that theory of life had to offer and I know its limits. Like for the past year or two, I've really been living this theory of life of like ultimate efficiency. You know, I lived in eight minute walk from the office and I mostly had like frozen macaroni and cheese for dinner and, you know, any meal that took more than five minutes that wasn't also like a social dinner out was unacceptable. And, you know, I really squeezed sleep in a lot of cases and, all these things. And it was extremely efficient. And I was able to lead many lives at once because I had eliminated um, like all chores plus rest. (laughs) And people would be really impressed and be like, I don't know how you do it. And I'd be like, oh, it's because I don't do any chores or like cook at all. (laughs) You know, that's, that's where I get multiple extra hours in every day. 
But once I fully lived that and saw what it made possible, it made a lot of things possible, lots of projects, lots of conversations, being able to be a coach and uh, a product manager at the same time and have this podcast, la, 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 lots of things at once. And what was the cost? I mean, I just was not really that soft, (laughs) you know, like I would get really steely in certain conversations and I think that my idea was I could disappoint fewer people by saying yes to more things, but if I say yes to something that I shouldn't have said yes to and I show up, I'm not all there and it's worse than if I hadn't shown up at all. So I more recently have come up with a new challenge for myself, which is, uh, first of all, the basic stuff is the advanced stuff, so stop trying to be so advanced. I really want to talk about that. Great. Can't wait. What's the other thing? The other thing is... um, do only what you can do fully in relationship. So like experimenting with the idea that doing more is not the ultimate goal. Um, The goal is to do as much as I can do fully, which to me means like fully feel what I'm doing, not just do check every box, but fully feel what I'm doing and what's at stake with it and do it in relationships. So don't treat relationships as overhead or as obligations, but as the substrate, like as the thing that stuff swims in, relationships are the point. Mm-hmm. Relationships are the point. So, um, you know, that, that steeliness you were talking about, whoo, I've met it, Diana. I've met it. And um, I'm really excited and grateful for this shift. And, and the acknowledgement of that thing that happens. And I also had no idea that it had a connection to you only having an eight-minute commute and only eating macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing I'm learning is that, unfortunately, everything connects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so it sounds like, the shift that's happening now is about depth versus breadth and quality over quantity. Yeah, and also patience. Like sometimes I'll get really frustrated with myself because I just got home and why can't I want to get the chores out of the way between 6 and 7 p.m. instead of putting them off until 8 or 9 p.m.? But what I'm not accounting for there is the need for rest Like, and the fact that if I just waited it out, at some point, maybe I would feel like doing the next thing. If I never give my chance, myself a chance to feel like doing what's next, then I just believe that it's not a part of me. Chores aren't a part of me. Taking care of things isn't a part of me. Corresponding with family members isn't a part of me. Like if I don't leave that white space, then I never get to feel want. And that's a bummer. Um, can I share my perspective on the how I do this thing. Diana, I can't believe how opposite I am on this. Like, um, I hate efficiency, I think. Or I don't strive for it very much anymore. Um, and I realize, actually, sometimes I get a little um, prickly when people bring it up as a as a goal like you know sometimes people will say this thing of like like this is a very expensive meeting and and what they're doing is calculating based on the salary of everyone in the room and the other operational costs and everything it took to get everyone here that's how much this hour costs you know boy i can't stand that way of thinking and I wonder why it gets me so much I I think it's because and actually I'm I'm working on on a talk right now Um, I'm gonna give it tomorrow so I think I can talk about it now because by the time this is published I'll have given it I'll have figured it out more Mm -hmm. Uh, clearly I've procrastinated. See? Not efficient. (laughs) Not efficient, but the thesis of the talk is making a case for not focusing as a way to 
unblock creativity. And I just don't believe that creativity, at least for me, it doesn't thrive when um, everything in life is running like a finely oiled machine, you know? Creativity happens for me like when I can take a lot of breaks and have snacks, when I can take a nap and then come back to the thing that was stuck on, when I take a really long time in the bathroom brushing my teeth and daydreaming, you know, um, I uh, when I actually have a, a commute that I like, that liminal space between stuff, I'm like mulling things over my head, like I can't do my best work when it's like, and I've really been in this situation before, when, and it's been product managers usually, <laughs> I have to confess, who are like breathing down my neck, like literally standing over my shoulder. Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Can you do another one now? Or like emailing me, you know, is it done yet? Can you send it to me? Can you just share it as you work so I can watch the words come down on the page? You know, I made a comment. Can you fix it yet? You know, and I'm like, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I, I am a professional. I do work within deadlines. I am pretty fast, I think, for the most part in terms of my output. Um, but there needs to be enough space for mess in order for me to thrive and, like, really feel satisfied. And seeing the mess not as a waste but as life. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not, like, sharing this to say it's, like, a good way or the best way of doing things because also there are costs to this way, which is, like, um, like, what are some of the costs? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know there are costs. Well, one is that um, I can do less things. I've done a lot of cutting, f- saying no to things, cutting things out over the past like six months or something as I kind of leaned into even more of a, of a, what, uh, my free range lifestyle. <laughs> it also means that I, I also still though have the problem of not getting enough rest because like everything kind of like spills into other stuff so I do have a strong sense of integration like oh life and work and everything it seems to flow very naturally but then also a lot of the time even though I still have a lot of I now have more control over my time than ever I think I still work too much. Yeah, it's hard to rest on command. Yes. It's also hard to have fun on command. Yeah. 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 What it just makes me think is that however thoughtfully we organize our lives, there are some, there are some realities that may be personal, that life is about finding out what that reality for you is. Like, where is your limit? Like, what can you handle? Um, At what cost can you handle it? And I think that part of my approach to life is about really testing every hypothesis and then using that as information for the next round. But that means I'll be really extreme on a thing, like I have been on uh, you know, coaching for the last year, I'll be really extreme on a thing to see if I really like it, to see if I can do it intensively and at scale. At scale doesn't really make sense here, but at scale is often the goal, you know, like, can I do this at scale? And then if I can, this is where I'm at with coaching right now. I don't actually think I should coach on the side anymore. Um, like, I feel nervous saying that on this podcast because maybe by the time this comes out, I'll be missing coaching clients and want to bring them back. But I just don't think I can lead that many lives at once anymore. And I have to 
I have to remember that the hypothesis I was testing is I will like coaching and be good at it and be able to make good money doing it. And I, all those three things are true. So I can just stash in my pocket and revisit it in the future. But that's so hard to willfully do because uh, I found a thing I like. Why not keep doing it? But not everything can exist at once. Um, I have a, a friend who, um, I, well, I, I won't tell her story, but but the, the general scenario is just that she was trying to to trying to live two lives at once, trying to do two really big things at the same time, and then spoke with an um, advisor being like, can I uh, keep doing these two things? And the, the advisor's response, this was a very wise person, the advisor's response was, God willing, it's a long way. <laughs> you know, you can do things in su- succession, one after the other. <laughs> it was like a huge revelation <laughs> and a really helpful thing that she shared with me when I needed to hear it, you know. And so, yeah, it, very, very interesting to to notice that you can love a thing and do it wholeheartedly and, like, let it go. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways I make these decisions, and I think this is one of the engines of changing habits in my life, is I'll look around and be like, what's special about now? What's the, what's the special thing about now that is... Uh, that may not ever exist in exactly this way again or exists here to a higher degree than anywhere else. Uh, Like when we were in college at Harvard, the thing that was really special, I concluded, was that there were like almost 100 libraries. And so I'll often cite that as the reason that I chose history as a degree because there were all these libraries with all these old books and, you know, history would put me in the libraries. And it did. I spent so much time in libraries during college and so it felt really special to the setting, and I have no regrets about doing that. Um, you know, my husband and I just moved into a house, uh, and I love this house so much. And now I'm super attentive to what's special about living in a house, what's special about moving into a house, you know, what what is possible now that wasn't possible before. And it is really different, and it should be really different. I really feel that way. How is it different? Well, we bought the house. So moving into a house that's ours, you know, of course, it could change in the future. We could choose to sell it and move somewhere else. Uh, But the mindset of it is permanent. The mindset of buying a house is this is indefinite. And so... Moving into a place that's yours indefinitely and where you can make any change you want, you know, we can we don't have to be clever about, you know, installing a special drawer system that we might have to take out or else we lose our deposit later when we move out. Like it's our house. Anything we change in it is part of the house. It's part of the bill of goods that gets sold to the next person. So there's a real sense of investment And my wish is for that sense of investment and long-term thinking to infuse everything we do. But we were so not in that mode. You know, we were in a mode of being married, uh, which is a long-term thing, in an apartment that was almost surely short-term. And so those two things were in conflict, which meant that they were in tension and they just kind of canceled each other out on a bunch of life decisions, where now being married and living in a house are consistent, like they're internally consistent with each other. This moment is consistent with itself. And so we're able to make different decisions based on that. And it's so clear, having visited your house, it just bowled me over how much that house reflects who you are. I mean, you told me that was the case. And but how could I know until I was like inside of it? And it's got all these nooks and crannies, and it's so special, so unique, and it's got a secret, beautiful garden, and it's very 
cozy and and playful and um quiet there and imperfect like that's one of my favorite things about it is that some of the windows don't close some of the doors have broken off handles but overall it's so well cared for it's just always in a state of five percent disarray and that's fine that's a fine way to live but that didn't feel fine before when I was in a remodeled building where you know I always felt like we would get in trouble for, you know, any change we made to the apartment. I always had the sense hanging over me that there would be, you know, the equivalent of the pearly gates at the end of our time in the building and that we would be responsible for every change we'd made that we shouldn't have, every hole we put in the wall that we shouldn't have. And, yeah, it's really different to live in a place where we're accountable to ourselves. And also the the apartment was extremely small, so um, there weren't any margins. Like, there wasn't any space for mess, actually. No space for mess, basically no closets. Like, it was really packed. It was a packed apartment, and I led a packed life there. And now, overnight, basically, we moved in last week, so overnight I feel a possibility of living more expansively. So this leads to one of the other things that's changed over the course of this season, which is we published this episode about budgeting. <laughs> I'm really glad you got there because I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> so I meant to listen on the way here and then like blacked it out, uh, I think because I knew I would be uncomfortable with it. But my memory of the thesis of the last episode was like, I don't budget. Um, so I listened to the episode this week, and that was my memory of the episode, too. I actually, like, it had been a while since we recorded it. So I listened to it, and it felt totally, like, fresh. I didn't remember exactly what we said. But at the end of the episode, like, after listening to it, I was like, but... It really sounds like Diana has a lot against budgets, and why can't still why can't we have one? <laughs> but so a lot has a lot has changed since then. Like, like where are you at? And maybe I'll I'll think about where I'm at. Yeah, I mean, I tracing back. I think that what I didn't want about budgeting was. The ritual of reminding yourself of scarcity, like the idea for me of a budget is that if you have it and it's a plan, then you have to check in to make sure you're on plan. And then if you're doing everything you want, you're probably going to be off plan. And so my expectation of a budget is that the feeling of having a budget will be of not being able to do things that I want and devoting precious time of which I don't have very much or in my mindset then was that I didn't have very much to the ritual of feeling bad. So I think that was probably my feeling about it. The reality is when Eric and I were deciding to buy this house, we did have to make a budget. We had to figure out how we were going to pay this mortgage. And houses have their own timelines, you know, like there's property taxes and those come in lumps and not all at once. And you have to plan. And I totally was fine with planning. It wasn't the most enjoyable hour to go through my credit card statement line by line and discuss with Eric like what each item was and whether it was important. But the end goal of having a beautiful house to live in seemed totally worth it. And so I think that what makes budgeting okay or what makes it acceptable for me is when there's one really big thing to organize around like there's one really big goal that everything else can be like a sub bullet of and can be traded off against and where I was at with my life as it was was I was leading so many lives at once that I really didn't want to have the moment of trading any of them off against each other because they were all important to me and no one was the most important so making one thing the most important can make trade-offs feel not so bad and not so uh not so sacrificial um i i guess this this kind of helps me understand even more 
like what was happening and kind of the the dissonance between us about budgets because like the the actually I, I think for most of my life like it it hasn't really been a choice to have a budget there had to be a budget or else we don't eat you know or whatever and um the the stakes were really high um in order to be able to just keep on living just keep making ends meet and pay the basic bills that need to be paid um that required a budget and so the the budget actually did reflect scarcity um and um like i I guess I I always have this sense that at the end of the day, there is actually a limited number of dollars in the bank account. And so, so why not, um, at, in, in the, sort of in the same way you're, you're saying like that, like, why not decide what matters the most to make sure, you, you know, that thing really happens. And so, you know, some periods of my life, it's been like the thing that matters the most is, you know, housing and food is still paid for. And then now, now in even though I have a sense of abundance, it's still finite from month to month. It's finite within the month. And so um, actually prioritizing what really matters and then budgeting around it is the only way to make it sure it will still happen. So preserving what's important and reinvesting in it every month and making that choice is a part of it. Yeah. And so it is actually like at this point, it is a lot about desire. The budget is about desire. Like, like for example, um, I've been doing coach training I it, it's it was like a, a six-month process and a, a big expense um so but I could handle it as long as I was really paying attention and making sure other things didn't creep in and and get in the way of it otherwise that would just inter- I would just have to stop I didn't want to have to stop it was really important to me to do each course in succession. Um, but only a budget could make that possible, I guess. Like, I, it feels like maybe I haven't ever been able to totally wing it with money. And it's, it's really, like, interesting for me to, like, observe like what comes from the experience of having been able to wing it you know yeah I mean I feel self-conscious about having been able to wing it but it's true that that was my reality for a while and the thing that changed that was raising the stakes you know I think that I had a bunch of things that were sort of lower stakes than their natural size I suppose because the apartment was not the nicest apartment we could afford you know the um like coaching I was just doing a little bit on the side and my job sponsored the coach training so there were all of these things that were there was a way to fit the puzzle pieces together so it wasn't a big sacrifice and so I felt very protective of that puzzle. I felt really protective of its fragility um, and wanting everything to be able to be true at once and not having to spend what in my mind was, you know, a precious hour. Like Eric and I probably only get a few hours a week together and spending one of those few hours uh, talking about what we spent and what we shouldn't have spent seemed really unpleasant. But 
I don't really know how hours work at this point because I definitely feel like there are a lot more hours in this house. And it's partly because I'm winding down commitments and partly because I'm saying no to more things. But some of it's just sort of woo-woo. Like, I don't know, like, because the house has more space, I feel like time is more spacious. Yeah. Also, we wound down our studio. That's right. Yeah, very key point. That, that was another thing we talked about in the last episode was our studio. Um, that was fast. It's gone now. Like, <laughs> Bye, studio. We had it for a year, you know, but we hadn't really talked about it on the podcast. And then as soon as we talked about it, it was <laughs> gone. <laughs> and that was because so much changed quickly, you know. Y- yeah, you have more spaciousness and like it just didn't make sense for and and I've actually come to learn that I love working at home and it's been a process coming around to enjoying working at home um so so it didn't make sense for us to have that space anymore and we've just moved on and that has created actually different kinds of spaciousness for example in our should we budget now that we don't have that there's new possibility for what could be our priority and, like, the dream that we're working towards. Yeah, I mean, before uh, before we let go of the studio, we effectively needed to make $10,000 a year just to keep the entity of should we around with an office because we had the studio space, which was, we said in the last episode, was, like, $800 a month, and then there's paying LLC taxes and tax preparation. And that all adds up to around $10,000. And, you know, we'd organized our lives to make at least that much money for should we. And we were totally doing it. But then the biggest expense fell away. And now there is more abundance. Mm -hmm. Um, And, okay, I feel I'm also, I want to go back to this thread of the basic stuff is the advanced stuff. Um, because you said it to me like a number of times and it did, I was like, I don't really get it, but I support you. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, but then it has started seeping into my life. I'm on that train. But tell me more about the train because I am on this train a little bit, but I don't even know exactly what it means for you. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, that's a good catchphrase when it takes on meaning for, for people before they've even heard about what it means to me. Um, <laughs> totally. So You're really good at catchphrases. <laughs> it's one of my specialties. So, uh, so what this came from is a conversation with my coach where I was getting really frustrated. This was around when we recorded the episode about taking breaks and how little I enjoyed taking breaks. And I think I told her, like, oh, you know, I'm sort of glad that we're working on my digestion and my relationship to disappointing people, but to be honest, I really believed we would be doing more advanced stuff, you know, seven months into our coaching relationship. Like, if I'm really being frank, I thought I was probably going to have a talk show or at least be <laughs> writing a book. Like, you know, I just felt like with all this support, I should be like catapulting up the ranks of advanced production, able to do more and more and more. So many shoulds in there. So many shoulds. And so I was like... I did want that. Uh, That's not where we're at. We're at like, I'm really looking after my relationship to disappointing people and this really annoying digestive problem I have. Um, And so I was just kind of being like, about that. And then I said something to her like, you know, the... I really wanted to be doing the advanced stuff, but I guess the basic stuff is the advanced stuff. Like... You know, these fundamental problems that I've been avoiding, like, I know that I'm not going to be able to get to the next level, whatever that next level is, by stuffing this stuff down. Like, ideally, my next book will be about going on an annoying digestive journey. Like, if I look at things about my next book, my first book, one of the books, but like, you know... If I've learned one thing this year, it's that creativity comes from tension and going through it. And so why look for new things to go through when there are things right in front of your nose? You know, my relationship to not wanting to do chores is turning up all kinds of things about 
how I exist in a patriarchy and how I like deprioritize nurturing and how I try to keep any helpful instincts on the DL so that I can be as productive and hard-nosed as possible. Like it's super, super rich territory, but I miss all of that, the most present rich stuff that's right in front of my nose if I'm focused on being a star. Diana, this this thread about um like the relationship between chores and the patriarchy, like oh, there's so much in it for me too. It's I I've been doing the same thing. Like maybe my whole life. I think possibly it came from my mother. Like like even though like we didn't have we didn't have anything. And like and like but I didn't help. <laughs> didn't help around the house and this was this was by design like my mother like didn't even seem to really want me to learn basic life skills like cooking chores whatever because she was she was like you know just I want to create all the time possible for you to do your homework and like uh, extracurriculars so that you ultimately live a life where you don't have to do chores and you don't have to cook. Because this was like stuff that was an incredible burden to her that she didn't have any choice about, you know? And so interesting. I don't do chores and I don't cook right now. And actually, I'm, I, I have a huge amount of gratitude to my husband for everything that he does. He's a more than equal partner to me. And yet I'm reaching a personal limitation because of how resistant I am to doing chores or cooking. Actually, it makes me feel like when I go out into the world, I'm, I'm powerful. I have some control over my destiny. I'm good at what I do. And then when I come home, I'm like so helpless. And I don't like that at all. It feels terrible. Oh my gosh. Yes. So just last night, I started reading this book that my coworker and friend Amy Hamlin recommended called Home Comforts. Have you ever heard of this? Nope. Oh my gosh. It's the book I dreamed of. It's by a woman who's a lawyer but was like a secret housekeeper. Like her pleasure is keeping house well. And she wrote this whole book that's like part manual, but it's also a manual about the meaning of each thing. And her whole introduction is about how the generations of women and feminism and how things passed on from mother to daughter made it so that there was a generation of women who felt stuck and underappreciated and and underestimated in the role of taking care of a home and refused to teach their daughters, um, probably or their sons. And so then everybody grew up helpless and uh, devaluing a thing that actually creates a lot of value. And she goes into spelling out the value it creates and how home is a place where we don't have to pretend or try as much and how you know, there's an equilibrium that feels really good to be present to and to be tweaking and in service of. And that just makes me think about how in this house that we just moved into, I had the experience of like bopping around this house is a lot like bopping around browser tabs. Like I'm just bopping around, enjoying each of them, seeing what needs to be done. And I can pass hours that way. Like it's totally not bad if I let it take time. Um, there's also been much written and said about um, the connection between creativity and doing um, like repetitive or physical work that can let your mind wander and how that, that can be helpful. I think Julia Cameron writes about cooking as a thing that helps her and... Um, yeah, there there are other books about that too. Like, but it's, so it's it's a it's a complicated thing, right? Because sometimes chores can absolutely be um, a distraction. Um, like, you, you, I could procrastinate on writing by cleaning the floor or something. Um, 
very often chores, domestic work has been a massive burden and obligation for women. Um, and then also it can sometimes be generative. If you are able to create enough of a space where you have choice about it and you are able to do it mindfully. It doesn't feel good to be helpless and be resisting something that you're also not sure you could enjoy. Like, yeah, I, I feel like if I believe there's a way for me to enjoy doing a task, that doesn't mean I have to do it every time. It's certainly, you know, share responsibility. But the feeling of resistance that comes with the question mark or fear that I'm not going to be able to get through it or I'll burn myself or I'll, you know, whatever. Like, I'm actually pretty capable. No surprise. But I just had a feeling of incapacitation around certain home things. And like no practice. No practice. Um, so I feel like the, the, this like thing, conclusion we're getting to is gonna, it's going to be very messy. We're not tying up any loose ends, but it's like this, this whole thing here is like, can we be feminists and do chores <laughs> at the same time? And the answer is it's complicated, but it's possible and it's worth it's worth exploring it's worth spending time on exploring i think that yeah. like but maybe not right this second like part of what i love and am bewildered by about this season of should we is that so much changed like so many things that we each of us said very definitively have completely just you know, like, that's not the right sound because that makes it sound like they plopped on the ground and exploded and are no more. It's just like they just went, they cycled out, you know, like it's a different season now. It's a different time in our lives where different things are true. And I think I do feel self-conscious sometimes about how often I change and how when people will ask me about the last thing I was excited about, often the answer is, you know, that's ages ago. At this point, you know, what I was excited about three months ago is like distant memory. So I think that our listeners should um, stay tuned for season four. I suspect that season four is actually going to have a lot to do with this theme of the basics as the advanced stuff. Um, but I mean, we'll see. Things change very quickly. <laughs> us um and uh yeah thank you thank you diana for um going even deeper with me oh thank you lisa and thank you to women's audio mission for being our wonderful recording studio and thank you so much to our patreon backers who have made this season possible Wow, I don't really want to say goodbye to this season, but it's time. It's time. You can listen to us on Breaker, the best app for listening to podcasts. And find us next season, wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs>